All right, great. Well, welcome to Over There, the podcast about military history and activism in the age of Trump. My name is Terry Brennan, actor, director, and opinion haver. And my name is Matt Martin, a retired Air Force pilot, drone expert, and defense thinker. All right, and this is episode six. So for those of you who have yeah. been with us for the other five, welcome back. And for those of you who are new, welcome aboard. We're going to talk a little bit today about uh, we've got a lot of things. We're trying really hard to sort of focus on military history, activism, and we're trying to focus on it in a way recently that isn't entirely driven by the news cycle. Uh, in the age of Trump, it's so easy. very easy just to get caught up in the news cycle, right? But there's actually a lot of things, I think, at work and at play with the way government is going right now that are not flashy and it's easy to get caught up in like a lot of things that that might be flashy and might actually be relevant but maybe don't always get to the heart of everything for example uh today we're going to talk a little bit about uh how we fund the military yeah matt riveting riveting subject (laughs) we'll try we'll try to (laughs) tackle it so no i wanted to touch on something before we get started matt and that is or before we get started with the budget talk there was a a big WikiLeaks dump the other day and Mm -hmm. uh as as you know and as our listeners know i have a I have a little bit of a brain for... I get, I get worried really easily. I get, I get really nervous, and I've, I've always been a nervous person, but I'm especially nervous ever since the inevitable happened. We elected Donald sure. Trump. And since then... <laughs> Was it really inevitable? Uh, <laughs> just fair enough. Fair enough. It seemed inevitable. I kept reassuring yeah. myself. I'm like, no, no. Looking back. But one of the things that... Well, last week, we talked a little bit about the deep state. We talked a little bit about what yeah. the deep state is, and... Boy, oh boy, has my Facebook feed been lighting up since then about the deep really? state and people. Really? Oh, yes. I've, I've, there's a lot of statuses saying, well, you know, ever since we found out the deep state was real. But the deep state <laughs> they're discussing, that is not the deep state we discussed. It's a uh, they didn't listen to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I tell you what, that when you're in a Facebook argument, nothing goes better than please listen to this <laughs> podcast I made. And all your yeah. ideas are the worst. Well, so one of the things that, that has come up is the WikiLeaks dump said that w- one of the big things is that apparently the CIA has the ability to spy on us through webcams on our computers and on our telephones and that basically anything that's connected to the cloud can be hacked by the cia now there's there's a lot of speculation to like how accurate this is i read a whole thing about how well yeah they can do that but so can big companies like they were like this is not they were saying this is actually isn't like groundbreaking technology yeah. But my thing, Matt, is, uh, is is this something I need to be paranoid about? Is this something that I need to worry about? Well, that's, I, I suppose that's a fair question. I, I, you know, I, I should start out by saying I don't have any special knowledge here. I never uh, never did any operations in support of the CIA or had any any formal connection to them. Uh, so all I know is what, what I read in the papers, same as you. And they never invited you into the deep state office when you were in the... <laughs> Not, not, not at the uh, at the agency. Okay, yeah, as we they weren't say. like welcome to the deep state <laughs> green room, uh, right? Commander State, yeah. we'll see you I, in a little bit. Sure. I, I, of course, um, one of the the central characteristics of the of the deep state is that there is no one one thing to it, right? The, the whole thing that makes it the deep state is that it's this vast and sprawling national defense uh, uh, bureaucracy uh, that involves millions of people and and huge. Uh, you know, government agencies and vast budgets, uh, and that's the thing that makes it the deep state. So, you know, the idea that um, there's a very small, nefarious group of individuals sitting around somewhere figuring out exactly how to, you know, uh, take advantage of the American people is a little absurd. And then, you know, I, I can tell you that, um, you know, when we were trying to prosecute targets in Iraq, right, even when we had 150,000 Americans there, and we were trying to go after uh, Al Qaeda and the Al Zakari network. Uh, that was really, really, really hard, and they were a small group of people, um, and using not very sophisticated tools. And we had to build these vast uh, intelligence 
uh, cells with analysts sitting around looking at video round the clock, and it still took us years and years to just locate that guy, right? So America's a much bigger country uh, with a lot more people in it, um, and so I think the idea that the that the CIA is out there scrolling around trying to spy on your particular, you know, if you're not involved, if you're a private citizen, you're not involved in any specific terrorist activities. I, I just don't think anybody's paying any attention to you. Uh, so I think that's paranoid. Great. So you're telling me that my Pornhub subscription is totally safe. <laughs> totally safe from the, probably from the government. From, <laughs> fair enough. Fair, from the government. Yeah. So, yeah. so I want to talk about the budgeting process. You were saying that yeah. some of the things that Congress does with the defense budget is actually significantly more detrimental to national security oh, yeah. than anything any of our enemies overseas <laughs> do to us. I want to hear more about this because I do know from a lot of experience working in institutions that a lot of times the inaction or the very frustrating actions of some people who ran the place were like, were far worse than any of like the the bankruptcy scenarios that would float around. Like, oh, are we going to be fired? Right. And I'm like, well, you know what? That's the least of our concerns because, yeah. FYI, you know, you get the idea. So I want to hear a little bit more about this process because I don't know a thing about it. So sure, the reason why nobody's really tracking this stuff is because it's super dry and super boring, and the defense budget is this very complicated process. And you know, as much as the Republican members of Congress love to go on and on about how they they care about the strength of the military and and the health of the military and the military's ability to do the missions that it's assigned. Uh, they they have it. They've done a terrible job of uh, actually allocating the defense budget and making sure that it's filled. You know that it that it serves the national interest and doesn't doesn't. Uh, serve their own particular interests. So I'll, I'll try to wade through it here a little bit in a way that, that doesn't get too far down in the weeds because you could spend your whole life studying the defense authorization process and still not understand it. But when I was in, the, so to, to kick this off, you know, there was a headline that caught my eye last week and it was the chief of staff of the Air Force. He was doing an interview with a think tank uh, and he made the statement that the defense budget that the, the defense budget process is a greater threat to the United States military than any enemy. And that if the defense, if Congress is not able to end what we call the sequestration, which is this mandatory constriction of the defense budget, that that would have a much greater impact on our ability to fight and win wars than Russia or, or anybody else. Uh, so that certainly caught my attention. Now, is that really quick sequestration? Is that something that came into effect under any particular political party, or is that just sort of a like a result of a large bureaucracy like the United States government? Well, it came into effect uh, in 2011 uh, during the o Obama administration when Congress was trying to, you know, I think you remember when the uh, when the government was shut down because Congress couldn't pass a budget. Oh man, do I ever? Yeah, and they were trying to, you know, and when there's a Democrat in office and the Republicans own Congress, you know, they love to find any point of contention that they can. And one of the things they typically go to over and over again is this idea of deficits, that deficits are bad, that we need to balance the budget, and therefore we need to find a way to cut spending. And they, they tend to try to focus on social programs uh, because that's something that they, that they think their base, their base can get behind. And they absolutely hate to cut defense spending. Uh, but the problem is, is that there's not enough social programs there, as we like to define it, to actually make a big difference in the overall budget of the federal government. 80% uh, of the federal budget is composed of the following things. Here's a list. The defense budget, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest on the debt. That is 80% of the, of the federal budget. You could cut everything else to zero. You could cut the FBI, the CIA, NASA, the EPA, the FCC. You could cut anything that you could, federal highways, the FAA. You could cut all of that to nothing, and you would still not balance the budget because there's just not enough there to add up to to enough to actually make a difference. So they realize that in order to, the only way they're going to they're gonna be able to make this claim that, uh, that we're running too big of a, of a deficit and we have to cut spending is if they actually dig into the defense budget a little bit. 
So they passed this thing as part of that budget uh, compromise called sequestration. And it doesn't actually cut defense spending. What it does is it limits the rate at which that that growth can occur, but it does so in a pretty arbitrary way in that it just sort of levels an across-the-board spending cap on everything that the military does, which is a pretty blunt tool. And that's what the chief of staff of the Air Force, four-star general, was talking about, that this very blunt tool of just capping arbitrarily everything that the military does makes it very difficult for the military to train and prepare and acquire new equipment, et cetera. So can I can I offer a really quick I want to just make sure I'm following this. Can I offer like a quick like analogy or be like, this is how I see what you're saying. Is that is that cool? Yeah. So that's kind of like saying in my household budget that Colleen and I sit down and we're like, all right, we're not spending more than one hundred and fifty dollars on any Mm -hmm. purchase. Mm-hmm. So is that about right? So so obviously right. I could get by on $150 a week on groceries. We actually spend a little bit less because we're really tight. But for example, if my car breaks down, I can't just tell the mechanic like, <laughs> sorry, bro. I mean, me and Colleen said no purchases more than $150. You're going to have That's to bring right. this price tag down right. for me. If, right. If your landlord raises your rent, if they raise prices at the grocery store, you just kindly inform them. Sorry, I'm not allowed to increase my spending by that much on anything, including rent. Like, like we had a house meeting, so like this is official. <laughs> so that's right. okay, so it's, so that's that's what I thought when you said it. So basically, it doesn't take into account proportionality. It doesn't take into account like, well, for the Air Force, for example, we might need X amount just because we tend to buy, let's say, really expensive planes. So we could do right. a proportional cut, but we absolutely can't do like you're not allowed to spend more than say three hundred thousand dollars on any piece of equipment. Right, and and it doesn't take into account the world. Right? <laughs> Things happen, and you have to change the way you operate, right? Like, we are dropping just a ton of bombs on ISIS right now uh, to the point where uh, we're running out of precision-guided munitions, or at least we're, we're, you know, we're having to constantly order and deliver new precision-guided weapons to those air bases that those airplanes are flying out of. Uh, And so you have to increase the amount of weapons that you're purchasing, right? Well, something like sequestration doesn't give you a lot of flexibility to do that. Okay, so that okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So, so I can kind of see now what you're saying. And now, now tell me. So, since 2011, have we had any like movement forward on this? Like, I mean, I know that this stuff like fluctuates. Oh, so no, it's 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 gotten worse. Oh boy, that's not what I thought uh, you were going to say. I expected bad news, but that was not what I thought the bad news was. Uh, so, so Congress has completely, in my per, in my personal opinion, uh, Congress has completely uh, abrogated their role here in prudent defense planning. So here's a data point for you: uh, Congress has not passed the defense authorization bill, which is the budget for the U.S. military, on time since 2010. Right. So the last. So and that's that's true even now. Oh, right? man, Here I can't we, think of anything notable that happened in 2010. I can't. I'm thinking <laughs> and it yeah, definitely thinking, wasn't huh? like the influx of Tea Party Republicans to Congress. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's a correlation there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it has, you know, you would expect that. I mean, at least a lot of us were kind of hoping that, well, you know, there's going to be, of course, we're going to have lots of issues with the Republican Congress and Donald Trump in the White House, but maybe the one thing they can do is actually do their job and pass some bills and pass a defense budget. But here we are, uh, you know, so the, so, the, so the defense budget works on the federal fiscal year. So the fiscal year starts on October 1st and ends on uh, August 31st. I'm sorry, th- September 31st. So that means here at the end of March, we're at the end of the second quarter of, of fiscal year 17. We're halfway through the fiscal year. And Congress has not yet passed the defense budget. Uh, they announced last week that they were starting the debate for the fiscal year 17 <laughs> defense budget. Where they're starting, they're like, we're going to debate what we should do retroactively. That's, yeah, you're exactly right. Because uh, what they, so what they do is, Man, you know, no when wonder the fiscal, nobody likes these guys. No, no, nobody it, likes Congress. And this is why. <laughs> yeah, right. And for some reason, they, they still can't, you know, here we are two months into the Republicans controlling everything and they can't. You know, you'd think this these this would be easy stuff, right? They could just start passing some bills. Yeah, you'd think they'd just uh, jam it through. 
Yeah, but they they can't agree amongst themselves about all the things that that should that should be contained in these defense authorizations because one of the things that has happened over the last seventy years since the end of World War II is that we have increasingly increasingly relied on the defense budget to uh, satisfy niche requirements, right? To keep jobs in a state or to keep certain industries going. So we have this situation where every congressional district has some sort of some sort of defense program spending in it, either a, a military base or a big defense company or or some kind of defense activity so that everybody benefits from the defense authorization. And that when you when the military tries to cut costs by getting rid of things that it doesn't need anymore, like like bases um, that it doesn't need because it shut down weapon systems or it's because it's consolidated or whatever. Uh, it can't close bases. It can't shut down programs. Uh, Congress is constantly authorizing spending that the military has not asked for uh, so that they can keep that money in their district, right? It's sort of the, de- the definition of, of the pork barrel politics. Yeah. And so one of the things that happens then, if Congress is not able to plan ahead and to vote for and and pass a defense authorization on time, is they pass what's called a continuing resolution. And what the continuing resolution says is that, well, we know you have all these things that you've planned to do. uh, And I'll talk about the planning process here in a second. We know you have all these things that you've planned to do. uh, And you, you need to be able to you know, count on a certain amount of budget being there so that you can do the things that you've planned to do. But we're not going to give you the authority to do anything new because we're still talking about the budget. But what we will authorize you to do is to just spend the same amount of money that you spent this time last year. Whatever you spent last year, you can spend again this year. And then at some point during the fiscal year, we'll approve your budget and then you'll get all the money that you expect to do to have. And then you can do the things that you planned. So you have so you have this phenomenon that's now repeating itself every year where, you know, through the first, first, second, sometimes third quarter of the fiscal year, all the different military agencies and units and organizations are sort of clamping down on what they can do and what they can spend. And if there's conferences or training or whatever that you need to go to, um, you got to really be careful about that because you can't exceed your 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 spending authority. But then sometime in the summer, uh, Congress finally passes the budget. And now, because you don't want your budget to get cut next year, you have to spend whatever money you, you have, what, all the money that you plan to spend during the year, and you might have a month or two months to spend it all. And so you have this phenomenon whereby military units go out and just buy dumb shit that they probably don't need, like big screen TVs or new computers or whatever. Uh, you have air wings that start to just launch all their airplanes and go burn off all their flying hour budget in the last couple months and just do a ton of flying, even though they don't need to do that amount of flying in a single month to do the training that they need to do. You have this sort of mad dash to spend all your money at the end of the year so that you have that same amount of money available the next year. And then you immediately, starting in uh, uh, October, tighten up your belt again <laughs> and wait for the next round. It's oh, madness. That sounds terrible. That's, this remind, my father was in the um, Army Reserves for 20, 20 years, I think. And mm-hmm. he's with the Army Corps of Engineers now. But he talked about this. He said that they used to send him out back to just, they just have to fire M16s for <laughs> four or five hours because they needed to use up all the ammunition so they could buy right. more ammunition next year. He explained this yeah. to me when I was 11 and it didn't make a lot of sense. I've since come to understand it, but hearing you say it like I'm like oh right like I've got like childhood memories of my father being like it's the dumbest thing yeah it's the dumbest thing and it makes everything you know the military doesn't want to do this they want to have just just a steady budget and they want to train when they need to train and they want to conduct operations when they want to conduct and they have one they have the right amount of bases and the right amount of hardware and the right amount of people to do the missions that they've been tasked to do and this crazy uh, dysfunctional budget process forces them to do all of this crazy stuff. So talk to me. What You were going to move on. You were going <laughs> to... I think that's... It sounds like that's like sapped you a little bit. You're like, oh, and oh. I'm a little bit psychically drained. Well, and it especially has uh, an impact when you're trying to do things like uh, acquire the next generation of military capability. So there's a, there's a lot of talk these days about... Uh, you know, the F-35. The F-35 is going to be the single largest uh, defense project in human history. 
by the time we buy the 2000th F-35 in about 20 years uh, from now that we had planned to buy, we will have spent $4 trillion on the F-35. You know, this is the the program that Donald Trump famously tweeted that cost too much, but then tweeted out uh, that he had saved money on it because of his amazing uh, deal-making ability, even though nothing about the program had changed. It was just sort of a natural budgetary process because the we're buying more airplanes this year, and so the unit cost just automatically goes down. <laughs> <sighs> when you want to do something like launch a... So the F-35 is, is a very important uh, piece of capability uh, going into the 21st century because it's what we call fifth-generation fighter technology. So fifth-generation fighters are not just stealth but you have to have stealth to be fifth gen. Uh, they are integrated into sort of a combat cloud. So they're, they have these amazing sensors on board. They're bringing all this information in from other airplanes. And they're so capable that, you know, it used to be if you were going to shoot down another airplane in a fighter, uh, you would have to find that fighter either through your radar or visually uh, and then get close enough to it to shoot it with your machine gun on board your airplane or shoot it with one of your uh, one of your missiles. And you have to be pretty close to do that. And so the thing that made your fighter super capable was its speed, its maneuverability, its acceleration, et cetera. And, you, you know, we have today the sort of still the mainstay of our air superiority is the F-15, uh, which has a perfect combat record and, you know, can do can pull 12 G's and can go Mach 2 and is just is just incredible fighter, right? Well, in the fifth generation world, that stuff doesn't matter as much because you're so integrated into this combat cloud that you can see the enemy airplane, you can shoot the enemy airplane, you can kill the enemy airplane before the enemy even knows that you're there, right? Because it can't see you on radar and you have these long uh, range weapons that can acquire and engage. And so the essence of fifth gen technology is this ability to, to shoot beyond line of sight and to take out the enemy even before they even know what's going on, right? So let me ask you a quick question because I think I understand what you're talking about. Are you yeah. saying that basically with this F-35, that it, it, it sounds like it is lots of information from multiple sources that are drawn into this single plane, meaning like there's... Um, it's not just the single plane that's gathering this information. Is that correct? Like, that's right. So, so it's like satellites and radar stations and like things like that, like multiple different places that are gathering info and then that's it right. sends it to this single plane. Yep. And now is it the plane that can do the shooting down? Is it one of right. these? And then, right. And because the plane is also stealth, it can use that information you know, sort of press into enemy territory, not be seen on the enemy radar and then engage enemy targets, you know, in a completely stealth manner. Uh, and it's yeah, it takes in we use a, what we call a, a, a tactical data link. So so a data stream that's either being transmitted from someplace on the ground or from an air, another airplane. A lot of people will recognize the AWACS, which is that uh, Boeing 707 with that giant radar dish on top of it. So that might be 100 miles away and uh, be streaming this data to the F-35 pilot so that he or she can can see where all the enemy fighters are and then press ahead and engage them you know, completely undetected. So this is like the internet of flying. It's a giant internet in the sky. Absolutely. Okay. But these are airplanes are very expensive. You know, when they, when they, they first started rolling off the production line, they were $150 million a piece. Uh, Ultimately, when we start buying them in large numbers, the the price will be less than a hundred million, but that's still super expensive and it, it takes a long time. And because the technology that they use is so sophisticated that the manufacturer, which is Lockheed, uh, you know, has to build this very sophisticated production assembly, which they have here uh, in Fort Worth. And um, they have to have highly skilled workforce and they have to have all the materials and they have hundreds of subcontractors. And it takes them a long time to plan for this. Right. And so they have to hire the right workers and get the right materials and and have this very sophisticated assembly plant. Uh, ready to produce these airplanes. So when Congress doesn't approve a budget until halfway through the fiscal year, that makes it very difficult for somebody like Lockheed to plan for all that stuff. And they end up having to do it at the last minute when they finally do get the budgeting. And that just makes everything more expensive. I imagine it sounds like and then a lot of mandatory overtime. 
I assume, right. <laughs> uh, which uh, I can tell you as someone who has worked in a place with mandatory overtime is the worst. It's, it's, it's the yeah. worst when you're like, yo, dude, I put in 40. And like, yeah, I know, but we need you for 60. <laughs> and you, you can't be like, no. Um, so what's the solution? I assume there's a solution or at least a solution that, as to let go of the sequester or something. The solution is for Congress to do their job. <laughs> You know? Oh, man, that's a theme lately. Um. <laughs> every, look, every year, months in advance, uh, you know, right, in fact, right about now, the, the military is producing its budgetary recommendation for fiscal year 18, you know, because you, they're supposed to, you know, they're supposed to get a recommendation. There's this thing called the, uh, the FIDEP, the Future Years Defense Plan. So what the, what the Department of Defense does is it tries to look ahead five years into the future and, and, dis, and figure out what it's going to need to spend money on. And that's going to be troops, that's going to be equipment, that's going to be all the consumables, the fuel and the food and the bullets, uh, as well as the facilities, you know, the, all the bases, uh, you know, and it, it plant it knows, you know, it sort of sizes up the world and say, well, what are we going to need to do our mission uh, as we know it and sort of plans ahead uh, and produces a five-year budget, right? And it hands this five-year budget to Congress every spring. Uh, and then Congress has the opportunity to hold hearings and call the generals in and then they can make adjustments. Uh, but it should be plenty of time for them to figure out what they actually want to spend money on. Uh, both houses have to pass a, a version, then they have to reconcile it, and then they both have to pass it again and then send it to the president for, for, for his signature. So that, that's what they need to do. <laughs> There's nothing stopping them. That's, I think, yes. Okay. That's a good place to leave this. Um, man, it, it's really frustrating though, because you I really thought you were going to be like, well, I thought it was going to be more complicated than just pass the budget on time. That's really a shame. Uh, that is really yeah. a shame. That's almost like being like, if Colleen came to me and be like, so could you tell me why we haven't gotten the car back from the, uh, from the garage. I'm like, Oh, well, I mean, I was supposed to like look at how much it would cost and then decide how much I was going to spend on it. But instead I did anything else. So that sucks. (laughs) So, yeah. All right. Well, Well, I can see why that would cause the problems you're talking about. Sure. and, and, you know, pe- people, so, you know, people like to, like when I was talking to Jan McDowell about this, you know, she, she wasn't really aware of this process. And, you know, to her, like a lot of people, so, you know, this year we're going to spend $600 billion on the, on the, on the military. That seems like a tremendous amount of money <laughs> and it is. Uh, and so when, when you hear in the news that the, that the chief of staff says, Hey, this, this sequester is killing us. It sounds like he's asking for more money. Right. And, and, you know, it's it's it may be hard to have a sympathetic ear to this idea that six hundred billion dollars is not enough to do whatever it is the military needs to do. Uh, but he's that's not what he's he's asking for. He's not necessarily asking for uh, more money, although I'm sure he would love to have more F-35s. Right. I mean, wouldn't we all? Well, wouldn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but what he's really asking for is some stability in the defense planning process. Uh, you know, one of the things that has happened is um, this this thing called what's now called OCO, Overseas Contingency Operations Funding. Under George W. Bush, it was called the Global War on Terrorism budget, uh, GWAT. Uh, Obama changed it to something a little more palatable, but it's still the same thing. It's this idea of a slush fund. So when we, uh, when we invaded Iraq, we had this idea that it was going to be quick and easy and we weren't going to be there very long. Uh, and we didn't anticipate this. Um, well, when I say we, I mean Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> and George W. Bush and Dick Cheney uh, and Paul Wolfowitz didn't anticipate this long protracted insurgency. And so we, the military wasn't ready for it. Right. And we were driving around when we first drove into Baghdad in March of 2003. Uh, a lot of the guys were driving around these unarmored Humvees and they started getting tore up by IEDs. Right. Uh, and so we quickly, the problem with, with the normal defense acquisition process is that it takes a long time, right? And, you know, sure, you get an F-35 when you're done, but it takes 10 to 20 years to do that. And how do you quickly react to def- changing conditions in, in your ongoing operations, right? So the military has always had a little bit of limited uh, authority to solve 
small problems quickly. There was this organization called Big Safari during the Cold War that figured out how to uh, produce new airplanes that have all kinds of sophisticated capabilities to collect intelligence. So there's this, this idea that you could have these small organizations that have a sole source spending authority that can don't have to go through a long budgetary process, a long contracting process, and can rapidly acquire new capabilities to meet emerging problems. So in Iraq in 2003, uh, the Congress started allocating more money to that. They called it GWAT, and now it's called OCO, which is a slush fund that the military can use to just buy things that it really needs. Well, over the years, Congress has, has realized that, hey, this is a really handy way to uh, give the military stuff to solve the problems that we should be solving but are not willing, willing to solve. <laughs> And uh, but if we just give them this a little bit of uh, money that they have their own discretion over, uh, they can solve the problems themselves, right? And and we won't we won't have a disaster in a place like Iraq. It'll just be really bad in Iraq. It'll just we won't lose an arm. It'll you'll just like you just won't be able to use your arm, right? But you'll get so, it patched up and it'll look nice. Yeah. So that the, the GWAT this GWAT slush fund this OCO slush fund started out as just a couple billion dollars. Well, today for the fiscal year seventeen budget that that Congress is debating right now, it's $62 billion. <laughs> and, and we don't even have, you know, in, in 2004, 2005, we had 150,000 troops in, in Iraq, and we were using that OCO money to support their operations, right? Today, we have less than 5% of that number, and this OCO slush fund is bigger than it's ever been because, again, Congress is using it to, to do their job for them. <laughs> And it just it's one of the things that just makes everything more expensive and makes the art, the, the, the mission of the military harder to do. Ooh. Well, so it sounds uh, it sounds a lot like the, the answer here, as you were saying, is uh, Congress <laughs> just needs to do their job. They need to do their job and they need to, you know, stuff like this. Nobody's telling them, hey, Congress, wh- where wh- why aren't you? passing a defense budget. Why is the OCO so big? Why aren't you planning ahead? Uh, people aren't beating down their doors asking them those questions. And so they can just kind of get away with not doing it, you know? Yeah. And I think that one of the important things that we remember then is as people who are concerned about this as, as activists and things like that, that sometimes it's really important to remember the things that sound a little dry or seem a little dull, because that is usually what garners large results that we don't see right. as readily. Right. You know, I'm no one, there's, there's not going to be CNN news headlines like, Congress, again, doesn't pass budget on time. That's not a, a juicy story. It's true. I think that one of the things that's important is that, is that we keep that in mind. We keep learning about things like this. And then, you know, we actually do talk to our Congress people about stuff like this. Because, again, you also want to be we want to be building a government that works well, not constantly patching holes in a government that is absolutely, you know, falling, falling apart. I mean, it, it's, it's, you're going to have a little bit of that patching. We have Trump as president. It's there's going to be a lot of things, but I think it's, it's <laughs> yeah. easy to let to get caught up in letting only that inform the things you do and what you're concerned about in Congress and things like that, because I hadn't thought yeah. about it. I didn't even know about this. This is actually really sure. A uh, helpful thing to learn about. And if you think the military is too big, if you think the military budget is too big, the single best way that we could actually reduce the defense budget and and still, you know, still be effective is to just just reform this process. Right. And just get into a normal budgeting process. And then we wouldn't need that sixty two billion dollar OCO slush fund. Uh, we put, you know, here, I, I think this is a, a, a data point that I, I mentioned Uh, on an earlier show, but the United States military, even though it is the smallest it's been since 1945, has more generals than it has ever had. (laughs) Uh, Really? Uh, That I didn't know. We are the most generaled military in American history. And the reason we have all those generals is not because you need them to to exercise command and control over the U.S. military. Like I said, it's the smallest it's been since World War II. The reason you have all those generals is because they, you need, you need the, the horsepower, you need the heavy hitters to go to these budget meetings and fight with the other generals over the table scraps of the budget. Oh, that sounds, that sounds awful. Yeah. And so if you send a colonel to a budget meeting and the army sends, sends a one-star general, you're going to lose, right? And so the next me- budget meeting, you send a one-star, and so the army sends a two-star, <laughs> and it just goes on and on like that. Uh, 
All right, so ugh, that sounds that it, that was like the worst of all worlds. It was like you were like, let's talk about something dry, like a budget meeting, and let's talk about constantly getting one upped in this administrative and uh, diff, uh, like boring sounding process. You're like, oh yeah. man, I got out boring today. I, I'm laughing because it's absurd, but it, it's 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 also to cover up the tears. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's gonna be a yeah. I've, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that going around right now. Um, well, let's uh, let's slide a little bit into the activism portion of this. If if you're calling, yeah. you know, you might be. So in your case, Matt, who is the woman you were talking to again in Texas? Jan McDowell. Jan McDowell. She is my champion. <laughs> uh, she, she's running for Congress in uh, District 24 against Kenny Marchant. Uh, Kenny Marchant, a notorious do nothing and empty shirt. <laughs> She managed to win uh, uh, 42% of the vote, I think, in 2016. And, and of course, the, the, the demographics in Texas are changing. And so we're really hoping that she could, uh, she could change things up in, in 2018. All right. Sorry. I had a, I had a, I had a minute. I had like a, I went away and I came back. I wasn't ignoring <laughs> you uh, as much as it was. I was like, yeah, right. I'm like, how does that even work? Like, like planning for two years and then making a run and then losing and then like planning again, and doing it again. Yeah. And, and then I, my, my brain like flew away to one of the things I want to talk a little bit about in, in the, the sense of like trying to get the people you want into Congress, trying to influence the people who are in right now is a big thing that the Democrats have been talking about since their major losses in uh, the last election cycle is that messaging was a big part of their problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're kind of getting beat up in the media. People are like, oh, the problem isn't the messaging. The problem is you. And, yeah. <laughs> and and some of that is true. But to be honest, like I think a lot of people overlook this is important. I think a lot of people overlook the actual importance of messaging. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. Like when you're talking to we talked a little bit about on some previous episodes about like talking to Trump voters, talking to your relatives or or people who may just have a different point of view than you do. But you you really think that you've got the better idea. The idea that the truth just wins because it's the truth doesn't take into account the world or how politics works. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they recently just did, I don't know if you saw this, I was reading an NYU thing today. They did some sort of study at NYU where they switched the genders of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and they ran their same messages. They ran, I think, all three debates and they, they hired actors And then they invited people in and like the people obviously knew what was going on. It wasn't like they were trying to fool them. Like this is candidate A and candidate B and they're doing, they literally were like, we just want you to listen to the messaging and we want you to tell us what you think. And what they, what they thought they were going to get, what they thought they were going to get was having a woman say all of Donald Trump's lines and do all the things Donald Trump did because they, they took it down to like the gesture. Um, It was really interesting to read about how these actors trained for this particular project because they had to get the intonations and the gestures pretty much exactly the same. And they said by the time they did it, because they took it off of tape that they had it like almost uh, like almost solid. Like they had a, a video running behind them in some of the rehearsals where they would watch what each of the candidates did and what the actors were doing. And the actors couldn't see the TVs behind them, obviously. And they said that they were just like, everything was the same because they practiced this down to, the gesture and the tone, which if anybody has any uh, experience in in performance, that's the hardest stuff is like getting it yeah. down to exact gestures and tone, like because that fights your natural sense of like, well, I'm going to put my spin on this because I want this to feel authentic. It sure. is really hard to be like, I want you to imitate this like word for word, uh, tone for tone, gesture for gesture and be convincing like that is insanely difficult but apparently they did it and they thought Hmm. that what they were going to learn was that oh yeah if Hillary Clinton is wandering around the stage and like taking up space and being awful that we would never tolerate that from a woman and and watching the male counterpart a man saying Hillary Clinton's actual arguments and doing her actual things we're like oh she's got all the substance and obviously this other candidate is a giant loser. Like they really thought that they were just going to get a reverse effect. 
um, they were surprised to find that they said that Trump's message was more, I don't want to say palatable. It was, um, it was stronger. They said that they said that the message on the woman. So basically like like lady Trump, when lady Trump delivered all of her, Things they said that it didn't. They no one was like, oh, she was too aggressive. All the things they thought they were going to say, no one said. Yeah. They were like, but what they did find was that the guy playing Hillary Clinton, who stood there and smiled a bunch and everything else. They said that that was incredibly ineffective. And they somebody somebody called the guy punchable. Like he just smiled so much <laughs> every time it got weird. I just wanted to punch <laughs> his face. And. Huh. And and the and so anyway they said that this was uh, in some ways like really disheartening but also really enlightening and what they found and this actually again like hindsight's twenty twenty so this isn't this shouldn't be like a huge light bulb but sometimes huge light bulbs are things that we've just kind of looked past we, it was so simple that you looked past it yeah like when you can't find your keys and they're in your pocket it was one of those things where they realized that because Trump is a salesman and because Trump is a reality star and because Trump is kind of a con man that that last one's me <laughs> that he understands how to deliver an effective message yeah it doesn't matter if he's gonna actually make good on that because he was really more concerned about winning the election or sort of like being popular and Clinton was really worried about making sure that all of her talking points were correct and this and that and right. this and that. And like, what, what was it? The, the substance of the message that was more effective. Was it the actual build a wall was more effective than let's reform our immigration policy. So I'm glad you mentioned that it's a little bit of both, but yes, it was the way he decided to deliver his ideas yeah that were simple, easy to understand. And here's the big one stuck. Yeah. Like they stayed in your brain and what you said, let's reform our immigration policy. <laughs> Already. The phrasing of that is a little bit boring and sort sure. of like it, and hard to understand. It's not, it's not like build a wall. I can imagine someone building a wall. Yeah. Reforming immigration policy. Like, I don't know. I don't know what that looks what, like what in my brain. Right. Yeah. In my brain, a bunch of papers came to mind. Like I was just like, oh, it's like a pile of awful papers. Like in that meeting where I didn't get my budget because they sent a one star general. Um, All right. It, uh, so the, the, the thing is that the language he used was concrete and, and actionable and easy to remember. So at the end of the day, it's not so much his substance, right? Like most people don't, even people who voted for Donald Trump talk about how they don't actually like Donald Trump. Yeah. But what resonated was he was like, I'm going to do the following things. And then he stated them pretty unequivocally. And so I want to talk a little bit. I read a book years ago about messaging. It was called Influence. It's by a gentleman named uh, Robert Cialdoni. Cialdoni. It's called Influence and the uh, the Art of Persuasion. Influence, the Art of Persuasion. And it's a okay. pretty good book. It's huge. It's really thick. And now it's like uh, required reading in all marketing, uh, most marketing programs across the Mm. country, which is a little bit of a tragedy because he wrote it because he was always getting suckered into buying things he didn't want. So he wrote it so like people like you and me (laughs) could read it and not get suckered into buying things. And the opposite effect. (laughs) It has become a manual for people for people who are trying to sucker you into buying things. That's tragic. So, (laughs) right. So, but that being said, you can still read it and, and get yourself sort of like prepped. Now it helps you defend against someone like Donald Trump who might have like some, some faulty substance, but it sounds really good. Like there's, but also can help you when you're talking to people and you're trying to make your case. And I'm going to, I'm going to burn through this. Cause again, like this book is thick, so I'm not going to get into all of it, but there's six uh-huh. principles that are used to, that we're able to get people to buy things, whether that meant fit, uh, actual per, actually purchase things or buy into ideas. Um, the first one is reciprocation and I'll come back to all these in a second. The second one is consistency. The third mm-hmm. one is social proof. The fourth mm-hmm. one is liking. The mm-hmm. fifth one is authority. And the last one, the sixth one is scarcity. Mm, yes. Yeah. Right. And everyone knows that last one. Like, Oh, I yeah. know the scarcity in fact. <laughs> so when you're, when you're presenting an idea, what's really important is that you include one or more of these, one or more of these principles you have a better chance of making an idea stick. 
Uh-huh. So reciprocation is uh, a really common one, and it's a trap I fall into a lot. I talked about this on one of our last podcasts, that I always worry that if I get into an argument, not an argument, but a, a discussion, and the reason I say discussion is because when I'm talking to someone and I'm like, well, let's actually talk about ideas and let's see if we can make some ground one way mm-hmm. or the other. Reciprocation is a trap I fall into because I get worried that if I want the person to take one of my points, I must take one of theirs. And that's pretty much how reciprocation works. The theory of reciprocation in the idea is that, like, I give you something, Matt, so you give me something in exchange. Sure. Now, you don't have to do this right away. Uh, a bigger... So so the trap of reciprocation is being like, I, I, you, you say, well, I'm willing to see your point that healthcare is something that all citizens should be required to, uh-huh. uh, to have. And I'm like, thank you. And you're like, so now you must accept my point that immigrants aren't people. <laughs> right. And you're like, oh... Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, okay. So now we're back to square one. Yeah. But the way that you leverage reciprocation is that when someone does make a good point or it's a point that you can get on board with, not something that you're willing to compromise on, not something that you're like, okay, I'll take it, but something that you're like, all right, I can see that. No, 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 I can see that. You just accept it because this is a long game we're talking about. Okay. This is, this is, this is more for like relatives. This is not calling your senator. Right. You just accept it because later on when you're trying to make a good point, maybe a week, a month, a year later, you want them to be like, well, Terry's an open minded guy. There was a time that I made him realize that, you know, (laughs) my point about spending less money is good for the is good for, you know, our, our national economy. He, he was willing to see that. And so I see he's making a point here. Maybe I'll go along with this. That's a long game strategy. You don't want to get into like trading ideas and it's yeah. very easy to get into trading ideas. Guys like Bill O'Reilly are really good about, I saw a few interviews where he says, well, why can't you just say this? He'll simplify it. I don't have a specific example, but he'll say, if I say this, why don't you say this? And yeah. it's always a trap. And that is actually how slavery made its way into the U.S. Constitution, which we <laughs> talked about on another episode uh-huh. where we, we needed the South and the compromise was like, all right, well, if you come along with us, we will right. uh, totally let this slavery right. thing happen, even though we'll, half we'll of the founding we'll, fathers weren't into it. We'll hold our noses and accept it for now. Surely... We'll 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 get th- rid of this thing uh, sooner rather than later, and we and definitely cleanly. <laughs> right. We definitely won't have to fight a brutal civil war over it later on. Yeah, and deal with like like generations of fallout after said yeah. war. Yeah. So so reciprocation is the first one. That's that's a very long game thing. Like uh, consistency. Now this is a good one. Okay, and the reason that and we all use this, uh, but when you use it on purpose, it's very helpful. We as people don't like to appear inconsistent. Now, the world dictates that inconsistency just is a thing, right? Like, I can't sure. be 100% consistent in my life. I would be dead. You change right. your mind about certain things yeah. because you have to. But I'm going to use the example of, of healthcare for everybody on this one because it's a thing that's a big deal to me. Um, if I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, look, healthcare is a human right. Like, we absolutely need to make sure that everyone has not access to healthcare, but healthcare. They need to yeah. be able to get healthcare. Yeah. And someone like, well, we live in a capitalist economy. That's just not the economy we live in. I can say, well, okay, a capitalist economy, you say. So you're telling me that hospitals are a business. And the person is like, yes, hospitals are a business. I'm like, well, they're required to take people at their ERs. Yes. And if I'm uninsured, I can skip out on the bill. And like, granted, you can chase me down in collections. But generally, the reason, one of the reasons healthcare costs are high are that uninsured skip out on the bills and we still end up paying for it later. Yeah. So A, why don't we just do that in a more, in a more organized fashion right. where we can... But the other one is I can say no other business like I can't just walk into Burger King and be like, yo, I'm here for an emergency hamburger. You have to give me one. <laughs> you have to give me one. You can charge whatever you want, but I'm getting that yeah, hamburger. <laughs> but I'm getting a hamburger and we'll talk, we'll talk about billing later. No other yeah. business works like that. So you can say, well, that's not really consistent. That's not really capitalism. So right. we already don't have a capitalist. We already don't have a capitalist sort of take on healthcare. It's not pure sure. capitalism. So then and, you can leverage that into something else. Now, and, and it falls into that same category of public goods, right? We've decided as a civilization that we, we're going to have a, a basic level of decency to include if you get hit by a drunk driver uh, and you have to go to the ER, we're going to save your life whether or not you can pay for it. Just like if someone invades your country, we're going to we're going to 
protect you, you know, with our military, whether or not you are paying any taxes, right? And we're, we're going to make sure you can breathe the air and drink the water, regardless of your ability to pay for clean air and clean water, right? Those are basic public education. Those are basic public goods. You know, we can argue about the effectiveness of the government's approach to providing those things, but we have all agreed that those are things that we should all have as a sort of common level of decency in a civilized society. Exactly. And if you want to lean on that, on like the consistency factor, like, well, if we've always done this, yeah. therefore that now, and you can then get into it, but you want to, because here's the thing, if you get a person to agree, like, well, of course I agree that like you shouldn't be able to turn someone away at an ER, then you say, well, then if we're going to carry that through, but people want to look consistent. Now the book goes into it in a much uh, more detailed and, and a much better approach than what I explained right there. But the idea is that like you want to, you want to look for ways to get the person you're talking to, to see that what you're saying is actually consistent with things they've said to you. Uh Now the next one is social proof, which is one thing that tends to influence us is like, everyone's doing it right now. Mm-hmm. You'll always get people who are like, I'm an individual. I go against the grain. Um, <laughs> but we all have groups that we follow, right? Because we're, we're social animals yeah. and that's how you survive, right? Like if I see that, that no one is going into the cave because Jim didn't come out, I'm also not going into the cave. <laughs> right. So, I mean, this is very, you know, like lizard brain type stuff, but the thing about social proof again, is you're like, you would say like, well, and this kind of goes with consistency, but are you like, well, would you, would, would everyone, like if someone was dying on the street, they got hit by a car and they're bleeding out, would everyone just carry on? And, uh, you know, the answer is no, somebody, many people would probably rush over and try to help them. Sure. And so then you want to like find a way to make that concrete and be like, would, so we're just going to let people die of like malignant diseases. Right. But the thing is, is currently we are. So the social proof is going in the opposite direction. Like currently we're pretty happy to be out of sight, out of mind, unfortunately, as a country. Yeah. And we've managed to convince ourselves that, well, if you have some sort of chronic illness, you somehow deserve it. Right. You you either you haven't taken care of yourself or you're not you haven't applied yourself to the point where you could get a job to afford decent health care or, or some such nonsense. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, one of those things, uh, one of the things there with social proof is you look for places where the person you're talking to would, would sign on to one of these groups. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's tough because the, the issue that we're dealing with, right. Is Democrats and Republicans right now. And I'm going to get to authority in a minute. And like, no one can agree on who an authority is on something because if they're a Democrat or they're a Republican, you're like, well, I don't buy into that school right. of thought. So your authority is not an authority. Social proof kind of falls into a similar thing, but what you want to look for is the idea, you know, making examples. And I know it sounds a little bit, so making examples and saying like, well, would, would everyone just, let someone die on the street would you do that and then trying to make a jump a logical jump it sounds a little bit i don't want to what's the word i'm looking for um not simple but you know it sounds a little bit like sophomoric or it's not it's not the most highly intellectual argument one can make yeah. but the issue that we're coming across again is that concrete images and like clear narratives are winning the day yeah and the issue, the problem is that Hillary Clinton is significantly smarter than Donald Trump, significantly more qualified, like all the things are, are in her favor. But the messaging and the way of getting it across just isn't something that, that people can like see, understand, and then sort of like internalize. Right. So you want to look at these things, you know, um, again and again. I'm giving you like six principles and then I'm going to throw a seventh one in there to totally mess with us. But these things, you only need one or two, you know, you don't have to be like a, uh, you know, a 3d level (laughs) chess player to be like, Oh, I see the whole thing. I can see the matrix. You just have to understand that like, these are the ways to tie things in that make it more understandable and believable to people. You hit one or two of those and you're probably going to resonate pretty well. Yeah. And yeah, and that's exactly it. And so the next one is liking. Liking is just what it sounds like. If people like you, they are more likely to believe or want to believe what you're saying. If you're an asshole, uh, people are, it's easier to turn people off. That's a tough one because sometimes you have to draw hard lines. But at the same time, we talked about this before when you discussed a gentleman at the, was it the VFW gentleman that, uh, 
Not the VFW. What, what's the organization that you you are a part of that have a lot of old the Civil Air Patrol? Yeah, sorry, in my brain it was a VFW. <laughs> um, but uh, but as you were saying, like you have something in common. Yeah. So you guys already like each other, so you can say, "Hey, well, let's talk." And you said you had to draw like kind of a hard line, but you're not like just going to freak out and yell at them and you know slap them with a glove and throw down the gauntlet. You no, say, no, "Well, no. let's talk about this a little bit." Right. And you're leveraging the fact that you already like each other. You already yeah. agree on something. So what you're saying must have some merit. That's right. And that's and, what and, liking is. And, you know, some, sometimes you've got to remind somebody that they, that they do like you. Or you have to say, hey, listen, you know, you and I, we've been friends a long time. Uh, you know, remember that time when you helped me and I helped you? Well, you know, you need to listen to what I'm saying here because I, I care about this. And, you know, I'm not just trying to argue with you. I, th- I think it's important. Exactly. So and that's and that's the thing. Sometimes you do have to remind people, especially in these arguments, like, hey, we like each other. Remember, because yeah. I've, and I've and usually for me, that happens online. I've actually a side note, I've walked away from most online discussions. And the reason is because I think that the lack of physical presence yeah. makes it hard for empathy. I think it makes it hard to see the other person as a person with points of view and it makes it hard to read it's, it's just easy to throw facts out there right and i put facts in quotes because all things are presented as facts right i'm like well you know healthcare is a human right that's a fact and someone else is like healthcare is a privilege that's a fact and you're like ah. and yeah. granted both of those are philosophies but you get the idea like i mean like right. pizzagate has shown us that facts don't always win the day right so um the next one is authority and this is a tough one too because when discussing with people it's really important to find authority that both people could agree upon. Mm. And the reason for that is if I'm like, well, Barack Obama is an authority on how to govern. Someone who voted for Trump obviously feels differently. So we have to find somebody who we can both agree on, or at least for today agree on. Yeah. And the other and what I tend to do with this is I tend to say when I'm making points is I I try to find authorities inside of the other person's circle. So for example, mm-hmm. a lot of people, a lot of liberals, myself included, are not fans of George W. Bush, but I might say, well, when we're talking about anti Semitism and the fact that Donald Trump needs to speak out about it, even George W. Bush says that he needs to do more about right. speaking up about these things. And there is somewhere where I say, look, here's someone that you clearly think is important. And they said this, if someone said to me, well, you know, Barack Obama said this, that, and this, I would probably have to see that point to them as long as they weren't misrepresenting what he said. Right. And there's a lot of that. So you got to like filter through that, but you need to find, so authority, if you can find an authority that the other person sees as a, as a, an expert or an authority on a subject, you want to use that as much as you can because yeah. it will at least get them thinking. They'll at least be like, well, maybe. And then uh, the last one is scarcity. And this is the one that's used the most often. Trump uses this all the time. I mean, most politicians do. Another one here would be fear. It's the idea that like either you have a, in marketing, it's like, I only have seven of these. So if you want them, buy them now. Right. Uh, in politics or stuff like this, like in the healthcare debate, you say, well, you know, time's running out. Like with, for someone who has, like cancer having a long long protracted debate about whether or not they should even be able to get health care like yeah. you could kill them that's important yeah. to bring up because a it's true and it's okay again it's okay to leverage these things in the idea in the service rather of making a bigger point and getting your idea across because again Republicans have spent a lot of money on how to message their ideas. Like a lot of years and a lot of money have been think think tanks tanks. and, uh, you know, guys with lots of uh, initials behind their name to sort of provide an intellectual foundation for their crazy ideas. <laughs> and that's exactly right. So, and that's, and so that kind of brings me this actually, I, mean, I can wrap up here. That's right. And I'll get in, I'll get into something called the backfire effect next week, because I don't think we have time, but the, you're exactly right. The, the thing is, is that if you look at videos from, I, I saw it on YouTube somewhere like the 1980s or something, one of the guys from the Heritage Foundation stood up and said, in the past, democracy didn't mean everyone got to vote. It meant only certain people got to vote. And I think mm-hmm. we need to go back to that. That's basically what yeah. he said. He's like, well, yeah. not everyone should be allowed to vote. Well, guess what? They found out that that is not a popular thing, even among Republicans, because you say <laughs> yeah. that to Republicans and everybody, when they hear that, goes, well, wait, who are these Yo, who are these people right. that can't vote? Am I one of them? 
So they got out there and, and they were talking basically about minority communities and poorer people. And, but they realized that poorer people, especially poorer white people who are like, well, I don't know. I mean, I've got some, you know, there, there are people out there that, that, that can get on board with like othering other people as long as they're not in that category. So there's, okay, so we need a better message. So now they say like, well, we need to protect democracy by checking IDs. And the reason they chose checking IDs at the voter station is because they knew that lower income people and especially minorities are less likely to have these things so that they can turn them away and they can say, well, mm-hmm. we're, pre- we're preventing voter fraud. Right. So here's the deal. Their message didn't change, but the, the messaging, like the way they get that across did. Sure. And the idea that sort of suppo- appears on its face to, to be a reasonable thing that supports a thing that we all agree on, which is that uh, only Americans should be able to vote in American elections. Uh, they were able to sort of find this idea with all these think tanks to support the thing that they really want to do, which is make sure that only their guys vote. Exactly. And the thing here is that when we talk about messaging, I know that some people get a little bit like, well, look, this is manipulative or this is uh, disingenuous and I don't want to take part in it. The problem is, is that's like saying, well, I don't want to fight dirty. Like, I don't know. I've been in a lot of I don't know, Matt, have you ever been in any fist fights? <laughs> maybe maybe one or two back in the day. When I was a child, I got into a lot of them because I was the smallest kid on the playground. So I got beat sure. up a lot. And yeah. I learned how to fight dirty real quick. And let me tell you what, I didn't get picked on anymore. And yeah, while works. I'm yeah, like while I'm not here to be like, yo, so you need to everyone needs to go and teach their children how to fight dirty. But the thing, you know, it's it, the the larger point was I learned what worked really quick and my my goal, my goal was uh, not get my face shoved in the dirt at recess on a daily basis. Yeah. If we want to get better ideas across, you can employ good messaging without being disingenuous and without being manipulative. But you do have to know that these things exist. These six principles, they exist. People use them yeah. and they're more effective than just rambling your point. And if you're going to get good at making good ideas stick, you have to be at least as good as the people out there who are pushing bad ideas with a really good packaging. I highly recommend Influence, uh, The Art of Persuasion. It's a really good book. It's actually, I found it a very interesting read. I'm not a big sit down and read for a long period of time guy. And the way it's written is very accessible. Uh, I wouldn't call it a page turner, but it's not thick and dense and hard to understand. He, he couches everything in stories. He did a lot of... Um, he like worked as a waiter. He worked in some department stores and he would like share anecdotes that sort of like explain sort of the principles in a real world fashion, which again comes back to what we were even talking about better messaging. Like he's like, if I posted all these raw facts and data in this book, no one's going to buy my book. Yeah. And again, like Trump is able to say like, we need a wall. There's people trying to come in and we need to keep them out. And people are like, I can understand that. And it's not yeah. a good message, but he has a, he gets it across clearly and people remember it. And the last thing that, that I'll leave you with here, and we'll get into this a little bit next week because I want to talk about this backfire effect. But one of the one of the problems about guys like Trump is that when they put out misinformation, when you go to say, oh, 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 Matt, that's actually not true. That that Pizzagate thing you're talking about, that's totally untrue. Yeah. By doing yeah. that, I'm actually making the story of Pizzagate stronger. Right. You're you're reinforcing it in that person's mind uh, and it, they believe it even more. Exactly, they believe it even more. And part of that is because later on when they remember the conversation, they're not going to remember much, but they're like, right, I do remember Pizzagate. Wait, what's Pizzagate? Oh, right, and yeah. then I've now... So so it is important yeah. to know how to have good messaging because there's a lot of misinformation out there that Trump's throwing around. And next week we'll kind of get into like how you can actually sort of, uh, when you're talking to relatives and people, like how you can cut down on mm-hmm. that. But one of the things is you have to have a good message of your own. They say that, like, I think we talked about this last week. You don't try to defend the ground you're on. You try to gain more ground. If you want to be successful, right, the generals and all the uh, admirals say you want to fight for something. We're going to take this piece of land. You don't say, well, we're just going to hunker up on our base and we're going to hope they go away sooner or later. (laughs) You have to advance out and, like, take. So in this case, if you want to have a good argument, if you want to, like, put these pieces of misinformation to rest. You can't just say, well, that's not true because of X, Y, and Z. You have to have your own idea and say, no, I have this idea. This idea is what's correct. And I can use one of these six principles or more than one of these six principles to build your case and say, that's why you should believe this. If that makes any sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, it does. And that's important because if we're going to be calling people and talking to relatives and reaching out, we have to, we, it, we can't just like hope that our message sticks. We have to like get good at what we do. Yeah. Uh, and the key to that is making an honest emotional connection with the, with the person you're talking to and not just trying to engage the, the pointiest part of their brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, all right. Well, anyway, that's all I've got for that. So influence, uh, the art of persuasion. Yeah. I highly recommend it. And also yeah. there's another podcast, uh, that I've been listening to that's helped me refine some of the ways I talk to people, which is called you are not so smart. Um, and I would say mm-hmm. that it's very good for, uh, figuring out how to make an argument. You have a point and this is how to make an argument, or this is what will sink your argument. So, yeah, we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. All right. Well, awesome. Well, uh, I want to remind, take a minute and remind everyone, um, go to the iTunes store, find the over there podcast. Yes, please. Give us a five star rating. Right. Uh, I went on yeah. there the other day and I gave myself a five star rating. I was like, Ooh, Ooh. Uh, and it said to me that I was, and when I wanted to see what the rating was, it said, great. We don't have enough yet. We don't have enough ratings to uh-huh. sort of create an aggregate and tell you oh. uh, how people feel about that. It's going to take more than two. <laughs> than Terry and Matt. That's exactly right. So go to the iTunes store. Give us a five-star rating uh, if you like the show because it helps other people find the show and learn more yeah. about us. Uh, hey, if you, if you don't like it, give it a lousy rating. At least it's... It <laughs> You know what? It's, it's, at least, at least, at least it comes up. I'll, I'll, I'll check with my friends on that and find out if that's actually a good strategy or not. Uh, so, and then also there's uh, uh, you can find us on Facebook at the official yeah. over there podcast. Official. Face, the official. So it's Facebook backslash the official over there ofi- official over there podcast. You can find us on Twitter at over there pod. Uh-huh. And you can, we would love to hear what you have to say. So if you have segments that you really like, or you have things you want to hear us talk about, let us know. Cause we really do want to know what people are interested in yep. and we will, we will get back to you. So, uh, Matt, that's all I have for today. Okay. So excellent. Well, I tell you what, it's good talking to you again and uh, I will see you over there. I will see you over there as well, Terry, over and out, over and out. Send the word to beware